My name is Paul. Nice to meet you, if I haven't met you already. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Now, we all have lenses, don't we? Based on our upbringing, based upon the culture that we've grown up in. So, for me, I am male. My male lens. I am white. I am South African, born in 1983. A millennial, born during apartheid, but kind of schooled after apartheid, if that makes sense. Yeah, I got saved at the age of 13 in this youth group. Uh, so, and then brought up in this church. So a white Western Christian expression. And then I've run out of pairs of glasses, but I'd like to throw in a little bit of rock and roll angst as a lens that I grew up with. So uh, you could all leave and I wouldn't know, you know that. The, the more lenses that we have on, the less clearly we're able to see truth. And um, our lenses are based on our culture, as I've already said. Now, culture can be defined as the water in which we swim. If you had to make friends with a goldfish, let's just make sure you're still here. <laughs> Thank you for staying. If you had to make friends with a goldfish and ask that goldfish to describe water to you, a goldfish would look at you and go, well, what on earth are you talking about? What is water? A goldfish swims in water but has no idea of the concept of water. A goldfish in a bowl on your shelf thinks it's flying in your lounge. That's what it thinks. It cannot see the water. Culture is invisible until it is foreign. The only way you see culture is when you see a culture that is different to yours. The only way we can assess our own culture is by being exposed to cultures that are different. Based on our culture, we have a worldview, the way we see the world. A worldview is a set of beliefs and values that shape a person's approach to the most important issues of life. One of the most famous and well-known stories in the Bible is 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. David was a shepherd boy who ended up becoming the king of Israel, a mighty man. But he was a shepherd boy, and he was the youngest of Samuel, the book of Samuel tells us eight brothers. The book of Chronicles tells us seven brothers. So someone really got overlooked. Sorry, don't know who that guy was. But he was the youngest. And um, so he was kind of left, you go look after the sheep and we'll kind of do the manly things. We'll fix the cars. We'll build the tables. We'll do all those things. We'll watch the rugby. You watch the sheep. All right? And so David was always kind of excluded. His three oldest brothers ended up in battle in the Israelite army fighting against the Philistines, all right? Now, there was a Philistine giant named Goliath. Many of us will know the story. Jesse, David's father, sent David from the, the, the shepherd fields to go and take some supplies to his brothers. So that's how he ends up on the scene on this battlefield. And when he arrives there, he sees this huge man, Goliath, taunting the armies of the living God, taunting the, the Israelite armies, saying, who's going to come fight me? What man is big enough, strong enough, brave enough to come fight me? And all the Israelites are cowering and hiding away, and no one wants to face this guy. So the little shepherd boy says, she shall take this guy on. So he goes up to King Saul, and he says, put me on, coach. I'll take him on. So Saul says, okay, take my armor. And so David starts to put on, you know, the armor, it's not just, you put on the layers, then another piece of armor, another piece. Eventually it's like, 
I don't think this is very practical, Saul. <laughs> now, in the Israelite army, it would have been a, a culture in the military that that armor would set you up for success. It would aid you in your mission to take down Goliath. Thankfully, David was not in the military. He was not in the army. He was a shepherd boy. So he could recognize that that cultural norm and expectation was going to prove fatally unhelpful to his mission. Correct. So he said, actually, Saul, I'm not going to wear this. Um, this is going to kill me. All right. What's the point? The point is sometimes our culture sets us up for failure. We've seen a recognition of that lately in our nation, haven't we? This issue of gender-based violence. Where does it come from? People are showing us that the water in which we swim is dirty. We didn't know it until it becomes black and filthy. Eventually we can't see through it. But we have these lenses. We can say, well, how on earth did it get you? And we can, men, we can say, hey, don't, put, don't lump me in that group of people. What's the hashtag? Men are trash? Don't you put that evil on me. I haven't done anything. I say, how did we, how did we get to this place? It's, remember, the, the water in which we swim is invisible to us until at some point it becomes so dark and so black and so impure that we notice blatantly that something's wrong. But how did we get here? So let's talk about how we got here. I said I went to a Model C all-boys high school. How did we, or maybe not even me, but the friends that I sat with at break, how did those conversations around girls, how did they go? What was being said? Even in a Christian context, I was part of a Christian surfers kind of ministry back in the day uh, called Sunsurf. And we used to, we, we would go surfing and the girls would come and we would call the girls bag watchers. Right? I led Cog's Youth for a long time. And now I enjoy parody. You know what parody is? Like when you take a song or you can take a culture. So Trevor Noah, South African comedian, does parodies of our culture. Right? It's when you, you imitate something, but you exaggerate it to make it funny. So I love that. I love Trevor Noah. I love songs when people take someone's song and make it. I used to do that to my friend. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Good times. But we would do that, and we would find it funny. And so at our youth, we had these two uh, all-girls laugh groups. There was so much laugh there. There was this community of young girls that were found a place to belong. They, they loved Jesus. It was, it was awesome. And they used to, there used to be a lot of setting up and sitting down on a Friday night and people serving. And these girls used to help us by cleaning up all the hot chocolate mugs and all that stuff. So what we did, we called the one of these groups Witka, and we called the other one Gwek. Witka standing for women in the kitchen, Gwek standing for girls who enjoy cleaning, which is, I'm going to be honest, it's funny. Get your laugh out, but was I helping the water, or was I just putting teaspoons of sand into the bowl? Was I fueling the flame of this culture that we have formed? What about a generation of parents who refused to talk to the children about sex? And sex became this taboo subject and, and, and which, which created shame around the subject. And so then you've got 
young guys and maybe even young girls that were going to school and all this talk was happening and then pornography would come around and they weren't equipped to deal with it and shame kept piling on. I want to say to parents, protect your kids from pornography, but more importantly, protect your kids from shame because if they can't talk to you about it, then they're history. What lens does all this? Pornography, and who knows how to define pornography? Because it's not necessarily the, the ultimate end of the spectrum. Where does pornography start? But what lens does our marketing, what lens does our conversations about, around women, what do we form in the minds of our young people or even anyone? What lens do we put on? We put on the, the lens over men's eyes that women are objects that exist for their pleasure. So we can respond online and say, don't you call me trash. Don't you put, lump me in that thing. But we have all fed the bowl with sand. Until we acknowledge that we're responsible, we can't be a part of the solution. So I want to share a personal testimony about Evie and I. Evie is my wife. We have been married for 13 years. And we started dating at the age of 19. And uh, she was my first girlfriend. <laughs> and I always remember thinking before, I, always <laughs> thinking, how do you date a Christian girl? I had very worldly mates at school. So I, there was, the paradigm was just so contrasting. I was like, how do you date a Christian girl? Like, how do you do this? Which is why I didn't date. <laughs> it was just, surely, it, actually, it can't be done. Until I realized, actually, this is the girl I'm going to marry. And uh, when we started dating, we made a commitment at the age of 19 that our first kiss would be on our wedding day. Now, I had Christian friends who criticized me and thought I was all legalistic and all that stuff. But anyway, when it came to our wedding day, when Piet Wallace said, you may kiss your bride, it meant something. Because we had dated for three years and then be engaged for seven months. It meant something. And uh, the day before we got married, Evie gave me this envelope. <laughs> you can see I've tried to keep it safe. I've shared this many times with youth ministries and whatnot, but actually I don't think I've ever done it at church. It says, the best gift I can give you. I love you so much and will walk down the aisle to you, my husband. This was the day before our wedding day. She gave me this card. When I opened it up and saw it, I recognized it immediately, and I just broke down crying because I had also filled it out, but I wasn't sentimental enough to keep it. <laughs> And it says, true love waits. By signing this card, believing that true love waits, I make a pledge to God, myself, my family, and my future spouse to be sexually pure until marriage by the grace of God. Name Evie Argerman, age 13, address blah, 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 29th of the 8th, 1997. We got married in 2006. God entrusted her to her parents so that they could steward her for her husband, so that he could steward her to give back to God in a better state that she arrived in this earth. Until I heard, you may kiss your bride, she was not mine. I want to say that our liberal postmodern philosophy and even our liberal postmodern interpretation of Scripture that says, if it feels right, do it and God's grace will cover it, this is where it leads us. Dirty water. 
The Bible says there's a road that leads to destruction. There's a road that leads to life. My friends who say, wow, that's legalistic. Live a little. Grace of God covers you. I want to say, how would you like to sit down with your daughter and tell her that the first time you kissed her mom was when she was first declared your bride? If legalism leads to death and the Spirit of God leads to life, you tell me which one that is. There are girls doing things that they don't believe in, they don't feel comfortable with, because they believe it is a cultural expression. I want to say to you that you are standing in front of Goliath wearing an armor that doesn't fit you, and you're dead meat. It doesn't fit you. It is not fitting of you. It doesn't look good on you. It's not good enough for you. You don't have to wear it. I want her right now, take it off. You don't have to wear it. Be free of it. If you say I'm too weak, I can't stand up to this. I can't stand up to this cultural expectation. I'll be mocked, I'll be ridiculed, I'll be laughed, laughed at. I want to say that David was a young boy with a sling and some stones standing in front of a giant who had been fighting from a young age with a javelin and a spear. You can do it. David also said, this guy, he's defied the armies of God. Men, will we say, these guys, this culture has defied the daughters of the living God. Are there any men in this room that will fight to the death for our sisters? Not a rhetorical question. Are you out there? Put your hand up. I want you to, if you don't, you don't have to put your hand up. But will you fight to the death for your sisters? Anyway, (laughs) rant over. Example of our culture blinds us right? And how we actually subconsciously form culture that leads us to a place of destruction. Okay, let's, let's have a quick look at church culture. Last Sunday, we showed a video of our history, and we interviewed the sweetest old lady I've ever met, Olive Stewart, uh, 97 years old, who was a part of this church many years ago, and she made a very funny statement. She said, it was a proper church. It had pews. And we all laughed, right? What happens when We're asked in 50 years' time, and we say, it was a proper church. It had a haze machine and amazing lights. Or we'll say, we were a proper church. We loved Jesus, and we rescued people. Remember, you can only recognize that it's a fishbowl from outside the fishbowl. So sometimes our culture sets us up for failure in the mission of God. What is our mission? We want to lead people to life in this church. We want to set the captives free. We want to bind up the brokenhearted, and we want to empower the oppressed. That is what, why we breathe. That is why we exist. And it's often the things that we're most convinced of, dependent on, and familiar with that hinder us the most in this mission. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 9. Story about Saul's conversion. Saul became Paul. We'll read from verse 1. It will be on the screen. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. 
I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother, Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Paul had lenses. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 talks about those lenses. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was, a, I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. As for the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, uh, zeal, I was persecuting the church. He had these lenses on that he lived his life by, and he was radical, and he was passionate. But Paul had to be blinded of everything he was convinced of in order to enter into the purposes that God had for him. Ready for some physical science? Because I'm such a, I'm Bill now the science guy, really. Newton's first law. Every object persists in its state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line unless it is compelled to change that state by forces impressed upon it. Saul, on a horse, riding with authority to throw some Christians in jail. Jesus clotheslined him off his horse. Boom! There was a force impressed upon him that led him on his back, blind, being led by the hand. Paul writes, same guy, in Galatians 3.26, he says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. You are all baptized into Christ. Jesus is the water in whom we swim. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. The lenses come off. And the lens of Christ is put on. The mind of Christ is put on. The way we see others, the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world is put on. And it's aligned with how Jesus sees all those things. I'm not proposing that there's a monoculture. As Rich said, we believe in diversity. We believe in color. We believe in creativity. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I don't believe that Jesus comes to abolish culture and abolish diversity. He comes to complete it. Every culture has good. Jesus wants to pull that up. Every culture has bad. Jesus wants to redeem it. And he wants to fill up every glass, every jar to completion. And it's the church's responsibility and role to point out where culture is falling flat 
and how it can only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is our role. So Jesus says to Paul, you are a Hebrew. You are a Pharisee. You are of the people of Israel. You are of the tribe of Benjamin. No longer. You are mine. You are of Jesus Christ. And he takes hold of Paul and he deploys him for his purposes. You've heard the statement, we are not being informed about our future. We are being reformed for our future. We can sit and we can, when's the next letter from Rich coming? When's the next on the go thing in our newsletter? We need the information. I need to know what, what I need to do next. What, what's happening? What's happening? What God has called us to is not just following some information. God has called us to more than nine minutes. Nine minutes drive from here to the sites in Cornubia. The call of God is not, okay, God, yes, I say yes to God. I will get in my car and I will drive an extra nine minutes. My friends, God has called us to a lot more than nine minutes. Information is how much further is it? It's nine minutes. Great. Reformation is what are we becoming? What is God completely renewing us from the inside out? We are fundamentally changing. Our lenses are coming off and we are being baptized in Christ Jesus. He is the water in whom we swim. In our fast two weeks ago as a church, I saw Anthem as a, like in a catapult and being lit on fire to be shot into Cornubia. I want to say, <laughs> it, the ball doesn't get shot unless it's on fire. God wants to set Anthem alight. I want to say that when you light something on fire, it gets destroyed. It gets ruined. Things get consumed. It doesn't look the same. But God wants to light Anthem on fire. And when he is ready, he is going to catapult every single one of us into that region. And the fire of God is going to spread like wildfire. And the kingdom of God is going to advance and in every sphere that every one of us gets to influence, the kingdom of God will be made manifest and put on display. That is exciting. Question, are you on fire? When Jesus called his disciples, his first disciples were fishermen that he called. So he says, come and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. When he goes to Matthew and calls Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector. Does he say to Matthew, I will make you a fisher of men? No, because Matthew would have been like, I don't know anything about fishing. I'm not going to be very effective. God wants to take what you are, what you have, what you're good at, and he wants to deploy you for his purposes. He wants to deploy your vocational power. What is that? Your knowledge. There is a whole lot of knowledge sitting in these chairs right now that is way beyond what I know. There are things that the person next to you know that you don't. God wants to deploy your knowledge, your platform, your networks, your position, your skills, and your reputation for his purposes. He is asking you for more than nine minutes. You might ask, what can I do? So what is it? Where does your passion, your greatest passion, 
and the world's deepest hunger meet. There is a crossroads in the middle that meets. Paul had a zeal for God, and then when he met Jesus, he discovered that the world has a great need for a Savior. And so he found that crossroads, and his life was defined by that crossroads from then on. He gave his life wholeheartedly to that mission. What has blinded you to everything else, even what you're most convinced of, and is leading you by the hand? The things that you are most convinced of, have you had that encounter by that unstoppable force, that unexpected force, that compelling force that has knocked you off your horse, left you blind to what you were most convinced of, and is leading you by the hand? It's not about what vision you have. It's about what vision has you. What vision has you today? What will you die for? What is it when you're chatting to people over a coffee table, or maybe you're in a meeting, and you start to talk about something, you start to smack your fists on the table, and you start to maybe get a little passionate and angry, and it's like, whoa, simmer down, calm your jets. Do you have anything like that? Not about what vision you have. What vision has you? I'm going to conclude. Three points and three responses. Point number one is we all have broken lenses. Our response is to recognize what cultural expressions or expectations are unhelpful to our mission. We need to remove our lenses. And I've been pondering on this whole thing that's going on in social media about gender-based violence. Our defenses maintain our lenses. Where we get defensive about the things we're most convinced of, and that our lenses are defining those things, we just keep our lens on and we're unable to see the truth. When men are saying, don't lump me in with that crew, don't call me trash, I haven't played a part in it, our defenses just maintain our lenses. What is stopping us and hindering us from our mission? Point number two is, what vision has you? What has blinded you to everything else and is leading you by the hand? Our response is to ask God to impress the force of his purpose and will upon you. That's your response this morning. Will you ask God to knock you off your horse? Will you ask God to blind you to everything you're convinced of, even the things you're most passionate about? Are you truly prepared to do the will of God? And today, will we ask him? to do it. Point number three is, where does your greatest passion and the world's deepest hunger meet? God wants to deploy your vocational power for his purposes. Our response, the map to that crossroads is the community of the church. You will never find that crossroad outside of church community, where your greatest passion and the world's deepest hunger meet. We've got Corin here. I picked out Conrad in our first service. Corin Usher, part of the Anthem Recovery team. Anthem Recovery is a crossroad where people's greatest passion and the world's deepest hunger meet. And we see the power of God on display, the grace of God evident, and people's lives being changed, people being led to life, the brokenhearted being bound up, the captive being set free because of people who have passion and have found in community the place where the world's deepest hunger and their passion have met. I want to say you'll be sitting there with dreams and no idea how to unlock those dreams. 
but through conversation and other people's passion, other people's networks, and other people's position and skill and knowledge, things will be unlocked for the kingdom purposes of God. And if we all stay segregated, wanting to do our own thing, we're never going to find that. Come together. God can accomplish infinitely more when we're together. Recently, I've started to try and find a hashtag for any message I preach because if you can't sum it up in a little word or whatever, then what's the point? So the hashtag that we're all going to get tattooed somewhere on our bodies today is hashtag more than nine. If you see hashtag more than nine, what will it mean to you? What does it mean for you? God is calling me to not sacrifice nine minutes so that I can drive nine minutes further to Cornubia. He's asking you to be set on fire and catapulted into a region so that his kingdom purposes can be outworked through your vocational power. You are powerful. And God has put that power in you and he has empowered you so that people can be led to life and set free and bound up. Hashtag more than none. My hope is that Jesus would be to you like the rising sun. Not because you see it, but because by it you see everything else. I don't want all of us to stand. I want those who want to be knocked off their horse and blinded and led by the hand to stand. Don't do it because everyone else is doing it. If you're in that place, if that is your true, sincere heart's desire, can we raise our hands? Jesus, I thank you that you have called us to more than nine minutes. (laughs) Thank you that you've called us to the greatest story that any human could be a part of, the greatest privilege. Lord, I pray that right now that you would take off our lenses that would hinder the mission, that would hinder the privilege, that would distort our view of this great call that you have for us. And so Jesus... We say that we are yours. Come and set us on fire. We want to yield and surrender to your purposes because in that is life. And that is our true abundant life. So we say, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. Lord, I pray that many here would find that crossroads that we would be able to give our greatest passion towards the world's greatest needs, that we would find that place where our greatest passions and skills and knowledge and power is unlocked, that the kingdom of our God would be unlocked in the lives of people around us. So we say, light us on fire and send us out, Lord. Light us on fire and send us out for your purposes. There is nothing better, bigger, more meaningful that we could give our lives to than your purposes. So we surrender ourselves to you, Jesus. Come and have your way.